Thank you, Wesley and Josh Marie and John. I never tire of singing with you, hearing you sing the praises of our God. And I always miss it if I'm visiting another church because rarely have I been in a church that loves to sing the way you do. So I'm very thankful for that. We say that not to pat ourselves on the back, but to give thanks that God has been gracious. And we want to continue to appreciate his good gifts. Well, turn with me to Revelation chapter 6, if you would. Last week, we were in uh, beginning in Revelation 6, uh, beginning the seven cycles of judgment, which I spoke about last week. And here are the, the, the seals, the seven seals. And we looked at the first four. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse was the title. Now, I gave you a brief overview, and if you recall, we talked about the fact that Revelation is not to be taken uh, uh, chronologically. It's not to be taken uh, in, like, there's this, this, this order from here to there, and everything in between happens in a certain order. There are actually seven cycles telling the same story of the judgment of God poured out on his enemies and the triumph of the Lamb, uh, ultimate, and the glorification of his church. It's told seven times over with, from a different perspective and often with increasing intensity. And so we find in these, these seven cycles, these three particular uh, cycles, the, the seven uh, trumpets, the seven bowls, and first of all, the seven seals. And in those three, particularly, there's this pattern, a consistent pattern. Seven seals, trumpets, and bowls, the first four are grouped together. And so we dealt last week with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first four seals. But then you have the fifth seal and the sixth and the seventh are somewhat separated. And, uh, and, and there's more, um, there's something of an interlude many times, as we'll see in this series. So... As we looked at the four horsemen last week, they emerged from the, sea, from the, the, the scroll and these horses with their riders come to the earth and wreak havoc and destruction and calamity upon the earth. So the focus of that vision was this world, this earth, this decaying place. Well, tonight we're going to look at the fifth seal and the focus is back really under the altar or before the altar in heaven. So please follow as I read Revelation 6. I'll read verses 9 through 11. Revelation 6 verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is the word of the Lord. Very simple outline. The scene of heaven or the scene in heaven, the cry of the martyrs, and then finally, the response of the Lord. The scene in heaven, the cry of the martyrs coming from there, and then the response of our Lord to them. So let's look, first of all, at this scene in heaven. John sees the souls of the martyrs, those who have been slain for their faith, under the altar in heaven. As I said a moment ago, in the first four seals, the focus was here in this earth. As the horsemen emerged, as it were, from the scroll... 
and then came to the earth and wrought calamity. But the fifth seal, our focus remains in heaven and specifically under the altar in heaven where these martyrs, those who had been victims of these four horsemen of the apocalypse most likely, who had suffered under their calamities, now are safely in heaven. You remember the four horsemen. The first one was on a white horse and he was conquest. The second was on a red horse representing bloodshed and destruction. The third was a black horse representing famine and pestilence. And the fourth was a pale horse representing death. And so the martyrs were introduced to as the seal is broken. They were suffering under those four horsemen. They had suffered. The reality is all men on the earth will suffer the effects of God's judgment poured out upon the earth and it, as it has been as con, and will continue up until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not simply a future event. This is a continuous source of calamity, of judgment, of tragedy from the time of this writing up until Jesus returns and restores the new heaven and the new earth. So we're not immune. Christians are oftentimes the target of that violence as we see these martyrs. But the question uh, can be asked, so when does this scene actually take, take place? Where do we locate it in the uh, chronology of last things? And if you take a chronological history view of Revelation, uh, you've got a problem because you're having to assign a, a time in church history when each vision takes place. And as I understand Revelation, uh, this is something that's ongoing throughout the ages up until the very end. It, these visions depict the continuing activity that took place from the time of John's writing all the way again until the Lord Jesus comes back. So John's not witnessing a particular event, but rather an ongoing reality in heaven. It's the cry of the martyrs throughout the centuries. Now, when John received this vision from the Lord, the number of New Testament martyrs was relatively small. There weren't that many who had been put to death yet. That was going to change very soon as under Emperor Domitian, uh, persecution broke out and became quite severe. But as we talked about last week, over the centuries, the 20 centuries since then, or the 19 and a half since then, uh, researchers have concluded there have been some 70 million Christians who were violently put to death for their faith. And the really astounding thing is half of those, over 35 million, took place in the 20th century. The persecution, the martyrdom has increased in its intensity and likely will continue to do so. And so their cry before the sovereign Lord continues throughout the centuries. Now, we read here that John sees the, their souls, the souls of the martyrs, under the altar in heaven. That's the first time in Revelation this altar is mentioned. But we'll see it mentioned a few times uh, again. But it takes us back to the reality that the earthly temple was a picture, a sign, or a symbol, a foreshadowing of the heavenly temple. And in the earthly temple, there were actually two altars. In the courtyard, there was an altar where the sacrifices were made. It was a very bloody altar where sacrifices were slain and the blood put upon the altar. But then inside the holy place, right by the veil going into the Holy of Holies, there was another altar, the altar of incense. 
that represents the prayers of the saints. Now, the Lord Jesus has made atonement for our sins once and for all, never to be repeated. There is no need for a continuing altar of sacrifice. And we read here that this is the altar of incense. In chapter 8, verse 3, uh, we read of golden bowl, or golden altar, rather, before the throne. And, and, and it tells us that that incense is the prayers of the saints were offered up to the Lord. So this is the altar of incense of the prayers of the saints before the Lord. Now, John wants us to see why were they slain? They were slain, it says, for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, the word slain, you could actually translate it, they were slaughtered. It has to do with violent death. These are believers, saints, whose lives came to a violent and malicious end. But what we must recognize is their death on this earth was not the end of the story. They are now resting safe and secure in heaven. And the reason they were put to death is for the word of God and the witness they had borne. They were faithful to God's word. They faithfully proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were faithful witnesses of who Jesus is and what he had done for them and for all who would trust in him. You remember the, the, the seven messages to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. The Lord, in every case, the very last statement is, to the one who conquers, I will give. And then he, uh, he promises certain rewards to those who conquer. Now, conquering may not look like triumphing over your enemies in this life. Conquering may not look like you inheriting the land, as we read in Psalm 37, that you've got your eyes fixed on here and now. Conquering may look like martyrdom. Conquering may look like being faithful to the word and to the testimony to the very end and not crumbling, not surrendering, not denying your Lord in the face even of certain death. Conquering primarily means we remain true to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. The very beginning of the book, the introduction, speaks of this revelation coming to John. It says, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. And that the word and the testimony, again, appears over and over throughout the book of Revelation. But it tells us these martyrs did not shrink back from death, but they remained faithful to the word of God and to the testimony. And that testimony, their testimony was sealed even with their own blood. So that's the scene that John sees in this vision. But now he turns our attention really to the main point, which is their cry, how long, O Lord? It's actually reminiscent. Turn with me to Psalm 13, if you would. It's reminiscent of the laments we read in many psalms. And I want to I show you one of the classic how long laments in Psalm 13. And I'm just going to read the first two verses. And this is David who's writing, and he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? In two verses, he asks the question, How long? Four times. And we find that cry of how long repeated over and over again, because waiting, and sometimes waiting a long time, is a 
key feature of living for the Lord in a broken and fallen world because we're looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God and we're not going to get that here in this life. Now for David, he feels like God has forgotten him, like, like God is hiding his face from, face from him and that the enemy is winning. In Psalm uh, 25 Verse 2, he prays, Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemy triumph over me. In Psalm 13, he feels like his enemy is winning. Like his enemy is triumphing over him. And he is being put to shame. But what we need to recognize in Psalm 13 is that David's in the middle of the story. The story hasn't come to its completion See, we know the end of the story. We know there's nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. We know that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We know that the one who trusts in him ultimately will never be put to shame. Now, that doesn't change the fact that sometimes true believers suffer martyrdom. True believers suffer persecution, sometimes violent and cruel. And these promises of nothing separating us from God's love and that the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. They don't make any sense at all if we don't factor in eternity. If we only are looking to the reality of this life, what we can see and touch and experience in this life, those promises seem hollow and shallow and empty. But we understand that there's another side to eternity. And here we find these martyr saints, they are resting in heaven. They're not languishing still on the earth. Their faith has now turned to sight. Their suffering has come to an end for all time. And they've entered their eternal rest. They enjoy a sense of the immediate presence of God. They will never say, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? Because they are enjoying the immediate presence of the Lord. Without interruption. The glory of heaven far outweighs what they endured on this earth. I want you to see their cry is intense though. It says they cried with a loud voice. That's not the desperate pleading of David in Psalm 13. But it's personal. How long before you judge and avenge our blood? There's an intensity about it. Now, as we sang in in the hymn, not for ourselves, but for your renown, I don't believe they were crying out for vengeance for themselves. Their longing was for the renown of God. They were longing to see the justice of God manifest. God said, the wicked will be put to shame. And they're saying, okay, how long until we see your name Exalted that every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is indeed Lord of the glory of God the Father. How long until we see your will done on earth as it is in heaven? And when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, that necessarily includes bringing judgment on all who have opposed him steadfastly and stubbornly. Now, recognize as this cry is going out, on the earth, these four horsemen are running pell-mell across, or riding pell-mell across the earth, wreaking havoc, and Christians continue to suffer persecution. 
And so there's a sense in which there, how long, O Lord, until you put an end to what our brothers must endure as well. Now, here's an interesting and important dynamic to that cry, though. While they were on earth, they took to heart what God's word said. In Romans 12, the apostle Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And then Paul lays this final command, and it is a command. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, overcoming evil doesn't mean you do good to your enemy, and he's so smitten in his conscience, he turns around and treats you with kindness as well. That doesn't always happen. It's happened sometimes. Some, the testimony of some uh, uh, notorious Unbelievers, Jane Roe of Roe versus Wade came to faith in Jesus Christ through the kindness of some children whose parents were working at a pro-life clinic next to where she was working in an abortion clinic. They overcame evil with good and she was converted. Doesn't always work out that way. We overcome evil with good by not allowing the enemy of our souls to defeat us to cause us to retaliate, to cause us to give in to hatred and jealousy and fretting and unbelief. But rather we entrust ourselves to our God. He will take care of it. So here we have these martyrs who took that to heart. They did not retaliate. They didn't utter threats. They, they entrusted themselves to God, believing that God would indeed establish justice for all to see. Now, now let's be honest here. Just let's, let's be really honest with our, ourselves. There are things that happen in this life that are unjust. There is oppression. And it grieves us. Wicked people carry out wicked schemes against the people of God simply because they hate our God and so they hate us. And when they violate these our lives as it were I hate to say they violate our rights because the scripture really doesn't encourage us to cling to our rights but you get the point when they oppress us they also violate the very justice of God let me say that again when the wicked oppress the people of God they are violating the very justice of God and our jealousy should not be just simply for, uh, I want my name vindicated. We should be jealous for the reputation and the, and, and, the, and the glory of God, for his great renown, for his justice to be manifest throughout the earth. So what do we do when we have this, 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 this sense of, of violated justice? How do we handle it? What do we do with it? Well, the Bible teaches us God is just. He will do right. And it says that it's his to avenge. He will repay. It's not only his right to avenge, not yours, but it's his commitment to do so. He will do it. And he'll do a much better job of it than you or I ever could. So the best thing we can do is just get out of the way of God's justice. 
But there is something deep inside of anyone who's truly been hurt, truly been oppressed, truly been persecuted or afflicted by others. There's something deep inside of us that needs to know that God will establish justice, that injustice will not prevail, that God is not only just toward us, but he's just toward those who oppress us. And God's justice, hear me, it depends on his punishing sinners. If God does not punish sinners who never repent, who continue in their rebellion against him, he would not be holy and he would not be true. But they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. And the holy and true God must do what he said. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, again, let's... We're not simply looking at ourselves. We're looking at the saints in heaven. Their faith is turned to sight. They understand God's justice in ways you and I do not yet. They understand his wisdom. They understand his holiness and his truth. There's no confusion in heaven about what is right. Sometimes we look at things and it's very confusing. There's no confusion for them about what is right. It's simply their longing to see right prevail so there's there's this holy anticipation for for god to manifest his justice Vern poithras says the martyred saints cry out for justice not because of their selfish desires but in tune with the justice of god's throne they want what god wants they desire to see god's justice fully manifested and evil eliminated So how long, O Lord, until your justice is poured out upon those who dwell upon the earth, the earth dwellers? And the earth dwellers are in contrast to those of us whose citizenship is in heaven. We may yet live on this earth, but we are here as strangers and aliens. That is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. But the earth dwellers, those who are hostile to the kingdom of God, will indeed experience his justice. But their longing is not simply for justice, it's for the very vindication of God's name, for his great renown. We see that in the Psalms. The psalmist cries out, why should the nation say, where is their God? And in Psalm 115, that question is asked, and the answer is, our God's in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And then the psalmist goes on to talk about the fruitlessness and the futility of man-made idols, the pagan idols that have no life in them. But the very same question, where is their God, is also asked in Psalm 79. And the answer is different because the situation is different. Why should the nation say, where is their God? And the answer is different. It's, let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. The wicked who had oppressed the people of God are saying, we can oppress these people with impunity. Where is their God? And the psalmist says, He's on his throne. He's going to carry out his will. And he will avenge the blood of his servants upon his enemies who who slaughtered his servants. You can mock for now. But that won't last. And so there's this holy longing of these martyrs in heaven, longing to see their blood avenged, longing to see the name of Yahweh, of the Lord Jesus, vindicated. Now, the reality is Jesus, while he was on this earth, had the very same longing. 
You remember our Lord was mocked and he was beaten. He was reviled. He was, he was falsely accused. He was crucified. Peter describes it this way in his sermon on Acts 2. He says, he was crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Now, Jesus recognized he was there to satisfy the justice of God. But he also recognized the, the, the vile and horrible injustice being done to him at the hands of lawless men. And in 1 Peter 2, Peter writes these words to Christians who are suffering unjustly. And he says this, he says, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he uttered no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He didn't say justice doesn't matter. He said, my God will make it right. My God will establish justice. I can give my time and my heart and my attention to the, to the matters at hand, which is suffering, the indignities and the terrors of the cross with absolute confidence that my Father will establish justice. In his time and his way, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He could go to the cross. He could suffer crucifixion with confidence that his enemies would not have the last word. His Father would judge justly. His Father would make all things right. And Peter says in that context, he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. So here we have the martyrs who followed in his steps. They entrusted themselves to him who judges justly. And they're saying, how long, O God, until you establish righteousness on the earth? How long, O Lord, until you do in fact judge our enemies and your enemies as you promised? Again, that emphasizes the theme of the book of Revelation, the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ over all of his and our enemies. And he shares that victory with us. So they cry, how long until we see your victory with our own eyes? And our Lord responds in verse 11. It doesn't specifically say God responded, but since he's the one who they cried out to, we assume that. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So first of all, each was given a white robe. Now, what's the significance of a white robe? Do you remember? In those in Sardis who were going to be subject to persecution, the Lord Jesus said, those who conquer will be given a white robe. Those who are slain for their faith, by the world's estimation, appear to be losers. The biggest losers in the world. And yet, given a white robe, a victor's crown, they're conquerors. They're the triumphant ones who withstand the very worst that the enemy has to hurl at them. And they remain faithful until the very end. Faithful to the word and to the testimony. Now, lest we wonder if it will ever happen. This is the fifth seal. I'm going to give you just a glimpse of the sixth seal. In verses 12 to 17, we have this, this, uh, this outpouring of God's wrath. And then we have an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal in chapter 7. And that interlude is the blessedness of the saints who triumph with the Lord Jesus. And look at chapter 7, verse 9. 
Chapter 7, verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. There are those white robes again. Representing the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. His white, radiant purity. Emphasizing that salvation is a matter entirely of grace and not of our own works as the memory verse of the month emphasizes. It's given to those who conquer, those who are saved by grace and persevere till the very end. And the reality is everyone who's truly saved by God's grace, he will preserve us to the end. We will all, if you're really in Christ, if you're truly in Christ, you will conquer. Jesus assures us of that. So the Lord gives them a white robe and then he says, wait a little longer. Their turmoil and their tribulation, that's come to an end. That, that, that has ended for all time. They never again will be persecuted or suffer any kind of pain at all. They have entered their eternal rest. And the Lord says, now, just, just rest a little longer. Well, how long is a little longer? God's calendar is really different from my calendar. His schedule is very different from my schedule. That's the tension that we feel in this life. We call it the tension between the already and the not yet. God, has, Jesus has already conquered his enemies. But that victory has not yet been fully realized. He's already won for us eternal life. Yet the full blessings and benefits of that eternal life have not yet been realized. He's already sealed us for eternity. But we've not yet entered the full blessing of eternity. So we're in between that already and the not yet. And he says, a little while longer. And he said that 2,000 years ago nearly. And again, a 1,000 years for the Lord is like a day for us. Or a 1,000 years for us is like a day to the Lord, rather. But in light of eternity, it's a very small, small time. Remember, Newton says when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. 10,000 years in heaven and we're just barely getting warmed up in light of eternity. Now, I want you to see something here that's really important. The enemies of God have not yet been vanquished. Justice has been pronounced but not carried out fully yet, but it's certain. The martyrs are longing to see, and the Lord responds in verse 11, rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who are to be killed as they themselves have been. There is a fixed number of the elect, and I would say a fixed number of those who would die a martyr's death. The Lord makes clear there are more who will be killed for their faith. The time has not yet come as this vision is given to put an end to oppression and violence. But there's a number. And when that number is complete, Jesus will come back and he will establish justice throughout the earth. Now, only the Lord knows what that number is, right? Only he knows when that final martyr will lay down his life and shed his blood. Now, 
the original, if you were to read this in the original language, the word order is a bit different. And I think it matters in this case. I think ESV often, uh, when they translate, they, because Greek word order is different from English word order, they, they, they do that to make it easier. But, but in this case, I think it matters. Because the original word order basically says until the number should be complete, those, their brothers or their fellow servants and their brothers who would be killed as they were. And it seems to indicate they're two separate groups or maybe one group and a smaller group within a larger group to all of the fellow servants of Christ, including that designated number of those who would give their lives for the Lord. And then when that happens, Jesus will come back and justice will roll down like the mountains. But God has sovereignly ordained when that day will happen. He has sovereignly ordained each individual one of his children, our conversion, our growing, our dying, our entering into glory, and everything in between. And the day will come when that number is going to be complete. The day will come when the full number of fellow servants will be filled up. And the full number of martyrs will be accomplished, will be killed as they were. And at that point, Jesus will come back and gather all of his people to himself and bring judgment upon his enemy. And in the sovereignty of God, he has set that precise number in eternity past in his sovereign decrees. And he's carrying that out in his providence day after day after day with his infinite power. Now, I think it's really important we take just a moment and ask this question. How should we think about those who are martyred for their faith? We who are earthbound, who are walking by sight oftentimes rather than by faith, and we're laboring to walk by faith, but, but we're so impacted by our feelings and by what we see and can touch. How are we to think about those who are martyred for their faith? We look at ministries like the Voice of the Martyrs and other ministries like that that call us to pray, and they, they give us the shocking statistics of what's going on around our world. And it grieves our hearts, and we should pray, and we should be grieved. But we tend to think that suffering for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of Jesus Christ is something to be avoided at all costs. But that's not the perspective of the New Testament Christians. In the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord himself said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are in good company. If you're persecuted, rejoice and be glad. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles were arrested and dragged before the Sanhedrin and gave an account of their, of their witness for the, the sake of the Lord Jesus. And they were beaten and then they were ordered to speak no more the name of Jesus Christ. And it says that the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name. To suffer dishonor for the name. Have you ever been dishonored? Suffered dishonor at the hands of an unbeliever because you're a Christian? 
Was your natural inclination to rejoice that God gave you such a privilege? Or did you nurse your wound and feel all sorry for yourself and say, God, I was just trying to serve you. How could this possibly happen to me? We're not seeing it quite the way the apostles see it, are we? Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you, but rather rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, it's his glory that makes sense of all of it. It's his glory that puts it all in perspective. It's his glory that so far outweighs present suffering, they are not worth comparing. The martyrs in heaven crying, how long, O Lord? They were not victims, they were victors. They had conquered and they were given glorious white robes. And yes, oppression and persecution is a terrible, wicked evil, and God will judge it. But as we look at it, if we think it's something to be avoided at all costs, we're missing some very, very important kingdom dynamics. And the saints in heaven have a very, very different perspective. There's a a book I I read a number of years ago. It, It really inspired me by a guy named Randy Alcorn. Now, uh, Pastor Alcorn's famous for writing a book on heaven, which is also very, very thorough and very inspiring. But this, I think, was his very first novel. It was called Safely Home, and it was about Chinese believers suffering persecution. But those safely home were those Chinese believers who had already been martyred. And it's fiction. And so he uses a sanctified imagination. He portrays these three Saints in heaven, a grandfather, a father, and a son, who are all Chinese believers who had been martyred. And they're peering through this portal in heaven and looking upon the son and his son, the next generation of believers in their family who are suffering persecution for the sake of Christ. And here's the conversation. The middle one, the father. There's got the grandfather, the father, and the father. The father says to his son, and again, it's an imaginary conversation, right? But he says, I wonder if our line of martyrs ends with you, the youngest of these three. I wonder if our line of martyrs ends with you or if Lee Kwan will follow the father who's there on the earth. And the, the, the son, Lee Kwan's father, says, if not Lee Kwan, then Lee Shan, the grandson. And then the grandfather says, perhaps one of them will be the last martyr. And he says, the men looked at each other, hardly daring to speak of an honor so great. That's not how we think of martyrdom, is it? Would my son my grandson, have the incredible eternal privilege of being the very last martyr. And so the Lord says to them, rest a little longer. Rest a little longer until the full number is brought in. Now, this is the fifth seal, the sixth seal that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. We see judgment being unleashed, that judgment they're crying out for. It's going to be swift and it's going to be certain. Look at uh, chapter 6, verse 15. 
Verse 12 says, when I opened the sixth seal, I looked, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black, the moon turned to blood, stars started falling from heaven. And if you look at verse 15 and following, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For great is the day of their, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? How long, O Lord? Just a little while. Just a little while. And they will be calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. That judgment will be swift and certain and dreadful for those who are not in Christ. Those who persecuted his choice servants will be terrified at the wrath of the Lamb. Dennis Johnson says the Lamb will return to avenge his witness's blood just as soon as the very last martyr lays down his or her life. The days on God's calendar are marked off one by one in the blood of the martyrs. Now, Lord willing, next Sunday will be Easter Sunday and I plan to bring an Easter message and then the following week I'm the next day leaving to go to California for the Reformed Baptist Seminary module I'm teaching. So Pastor Scott has graciously agreed to preach for me. So three weeks out, we'll be going to the sixth seal. But I want to skip over that for just a moment. I want to look at the seventh seal, or or the interlude rather, before the seventh seal in chapter 7. Because here we find the saints in heaven who have been sealed for eternity, protected from this wrath of the Lamb, and we see their blessedness. And in chapter, uh, verse 9, and I read verse, read verse 9 earlier. But here we have these saints saying, how long? And now here we have them. Oh, okay, here it is. After this I looked, verse 9, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen and amen. When the Lord Jesus invited us to himself, he says, all who would Come after me. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Now, in our day, a cross is a nice little piece of jewelry that we hang around our neck or earrings or what have you. But in that day, the cross was an instrument of torture and the cruelest possible form of execution. It's the face of martyrdom. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. Take up our cross and follow him. The culture we live in, we're not likely to have to face martyrdom, but the call to discipleship still applies. If he called you and me to rejoice and be glad when people persecute us for his name's sake, if he left an example that we should follow in his steps, and that example included suffering and entrusting himself to God, in fact, suffering the greatest possible injustice at the hands of wicked men, So I ask this question, have the temporal security and comfort and prosperity dulled our spiritual senses and our spiritual appetite for the glory that is to be revealed in heaven that makes present suffering not worth comparing? Are we more zealous to preserve our way of life 
than to lay up treasures in heaven. Secondly, how do you respond to injustice? Do you fret because of evildoers? We read from Psalm 37 a little while ago. Don't fret over evildoers. Don't fret when they succeed in their way because they're just a vapor. And the time's going to come that they will be called to account. And we, the people of God, will inherit the land. He'll give us the desires of our hearts. Can you trust that God will make all things right? If someone is opposing you, oppressing you, even persecuting you, can you trust that God will straighten it out? My God will make it right. I can entrust myself to him. He'll do a better job of establishing justice than I ever could. So I don't have to be overcome by evil. I can overcome evil with good. And the first step in that is showing kindness to those who would treat me cruelly. Do you believe? Do you really believe that makes sense? It doesn't make any sense at all if this earth in this life is all there is. But if there's a God in heaven who is going to triumph over all of his and your enemies and bring us to himself and clothe us in white robes and give us a glory that far outweighs present suffering and bring judgment and justice upon those who remain his enemies, it makes perfect sense. The mansions that Jesus is preparing us in glory are way better than whatever anybody might take away from us in this life. But thirdly, in chapter 12 of Hebrews, it tells us to run with endurance the race marked out for us. And it says, being surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. That great cloud of witnesses are those Old Testament and New Testament saints. And I would argue these martyrs who have uh, given their life for the sake of the kingdom from whatever point it started until Jesus comes back. This great cloud of witnesses are testifying to the faithfulness of God. They're not simply a crowd witnessing your persevering. They're a crowd testifying, witnessing to the faithfulness of God. He is sufficient. The glory is enough. He will faithfully see you through to the very end. And that glory will far outweigh present suffering. When we close in a moment, we're going to sing the hymn for all the saints. Now my aspiration in life, if I can say it that way, is to be the kind of man that is my friends count worthy of having this hymn sung in my funeral. I mean that. And we read, I think it's the third verse. Oh, may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old, and win with them the victor's crown of gold. Hallelujah. And then the last, you know, last verse. From earth's wide bounds. From oceans farthest coast, through gates of pearl streams, the countless host singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia. Wesley, come, let's sing that.